You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, it's good to see all of you. I'll let you who have traveled the furthest to greet someone get back to your seats now. Just uh, give you some time. Morning. Good to see you. Well, as we open God's word this morning, uh, let's ask for his help. We're not here to hear me. We're here to hear from him. And so let's go to him now in prayer. And so, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you um, for your word that gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Um, And Lord, I pray today that uh, we would sense your love for us, your good purposes for us, Lord, and the unspeakably good redemption we have in Jesus that frees us from any guilt or shame so that we can live before you in fullness of joy. I I pray that uh, we would see your great love for us this morning as we look in your word and your good purposes, and we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. A lot to get to. Let's jump right into the passage. Here's Paul's big point. 1 Corinthians 6, 20. Glorify God, Christians, where? In your body. It was easy to uh, title my sermon this week because Paul gives us the title, Glorify God with Your Body. That's his big point in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. That's the big idea. Glorify God with your body. And body is the key word in this passage. Paul says the word body eight times. And here's the point. Christians are called to exalt God, to worship Him, to love Him, not just with our minds, not just with our souls or our spirits, but with our physical bodies. A life of worship to God is offering the members of our body to Him in service. And because our bodies are so important to God, sex matters to God. So what is the Christian view of sex? That's what we're talking about today. And if it's your first time at Creekside, I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) And perhaps you're thinking, what did I walk into today? And if you brought someone today, I'm so glad you did. You're like, seriously, Jeff, of all the Sundays, I could have brought someone. Seriously, yes. That's That's the topic today. Now, obviously... This topic is uh, fraught with controversy. The Christian perspective on sex is fraught with controversy. But but I hope, especially if you're investigating Jesus or you're yet to believe, that that you would have a sense as we talk, not just of, of what Christians believe, but why we believe it. You know, that's my task today. And I was, as I was thinking about the task this week, what am I doing What I'm doing today is a little bit like taking you to Narnia. That's what I'm doing. You know the line, the witch in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's story, the four kids, they flee the war, they go to their uncle's house, they find a wardrobe, and they learn that this wardrobe is a portal to this new world, and it's a very different world than the world they came from. It's not the disenchanted, war-torn world of 1940s England, it's this magical world, and there are witches and talking animals, fairies. And and here's what the children realize. When they're in that new world, which is the real world, they have a different view of themselves. In fact, they learn that in this world, their own identity is far more enchanted than they could have possibly imagined. They discover they're actually the long-lost kings and queens of that world. They have more dignity, more honor, than they could have ever imagined. That's my task today, is to take you into the enchanted world of Scripture. And what I hope you see is that your body has a transcendent dignity and that sex has a cosmic beauty beyond anything we could have imagined. Uh, And these beliefs might strike you as strange. Why does this vision of sex seem so strange? Well, Here's why. The Bible is a very enchanted, transcendent world. We have a very disenchanted view of sex. 
Let me sum up the last 60 years really quickly in terms of what's happened in our culture, okay? Just give me three minutes. Um, here's what's happened. At the risk of oversimplification, 60 years ago, the pill changed everything. It changed everything. Because here's this amazing thing about sex. Sex makes babies. I recently rediscovered that. It's amazing. <laughs> it, seriously, it it's just sort of happens. Almost like it was designed to do that. It's an amazing thing. But, but when you get the pill and, and this technological revolution, for the first time in human history, there's an effective contraceptive, right? Now, that's new because for the first time in human history, men and women can have lots of sex and not make what? Lots of babies. That's new. And, and so you have this delinking between sex and babies and procreation, right? Now, when that untethering happens in culture, something else happens. Because here's another assumption that was sort of just made about sex. Sex makes babies, but sex also sort of attaches people together, doesn't it? It, it sort of bonds people. There was this intuitive sense of that. After all, you know, making the baby was a team sport. And so you'd assume, wow, you know, raising the baby is probably a team sport too. And gosh, since we each had a share in making it, we should probably have a, a share in raising this child we created. But when sex became delinked from procreation, it also became linked from what? Attachment. Unity. Bonding. And so what you get over the last 60 years is you move from a culture of relatively high commitment sex to low commitment sex and then to a culture of just no commitment sex where sex becomes abstracted from any relationship, any greater meaning, and this atomization, this individualization of sex, it just keeps continuing apace as technology changes. And so today we're at a point where we've moved from uh, no commitment sex to just self-sex. Because of technology, I mean, you can open your phone and be bombarded. This is new in human history, right? with endless, fake, graphic, extreme sexual content. And so we're moving now from a culture where it's not even about no commitment sex. You can just have a sexual experience without even another flesh and blood person around at all. And many men are discovering that because they're so addicted to this, they're actually incapable of being aroused by a flesh and blood woman are forming any sort of intimate commitment at all. Now, all of that comes against a culture of expressive individualism where the dominant idea in life is, where do I look for meaning? I look where? Inside me. And whatever I feel most deeply, right, what I feel is what's real. That's, that's the dominant narrative. So I look inside me, I feel these things, I express them. That's what it means to be an authentic person. And even if I have strong feelings about my own identity, what is sex in this culture? It's meaningless. It's meaningless. So even if I have a subjectively meaningful identity, what is sex? It means nothing. It means whatever you want it to mean. It's an objectively meaningless thing. And at this point, the culture is basically this, okay, whatever I want plus consent and maybe age, let's throw that one in too. Uh, anything else goes. Now, here's the problem with that. We know we want sex, but we also have moral intuitions. And, and at some level, humans know that sex is never just sex. It's profound. And you know why we know that? Because bad sexual experiences affect us profoundly. I, I've been reading a very provocative book over the last few weeks. Uh, it's by a, a journalist named Louise Perry. Uh, British journalist, and it's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's very provocative. It's gut-wrenching. It's hard to read. Uh, Perry is not a Jesus follower. She's a, a post-liberal feminist. That's how she describes herself. But, but she's convinced just based on the empirical evidence that the sexual revolution has been very, very bad, particularly for women. And, and it's created a sexual culture, she says, that doesn't serve Women's interests, actually it serves the interests of high-status men who exploit women for their advantages. And she just chronicles this in chapter after chapter after chapter. It's very hard to read. But here's her conclusion here, and this is just based on the empirical evidence. We need to re-erect the social guardrails 
that have been torn down. She sounds like a fundamentalist here, doesn't she? And in order to do that, we have to start by stating obvious things. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. Marriage is good. Now, that's just what she came to on her own. She said, man, we need some guardrails around this. Are things go really wrong? The Bible says, yes. That's just diagnosis. I want to give prognosis this morning. Because we have this intuitive sense that this thing is really powerful and can burn the world down when it gets out of the boundaries. What are the boundaries? Why are they there? That's what we're talking about. Here's my heart this morning as we approach this. As disciples of Jesus, we can't be conformed to the world. We have to be transformed by the word, right? Here's what it means to be transformed by the word. You can't just look at culture and say, well, culture's going in this direction. You know, it's 2023. Therefore, everything has to change. You can't think that way as a Christian. And here's why. Progress isn't always good. It all depends on the destination. Right? And, and in many ways, the culture's progressing off the edge of a cliff in various ways. We don't want to go there. Now, the solution isn't just to look forward and see where culture's going and try to get there. Neither is the solution just look back. And say, so if we just were traditional again, everything would be fine. Because show me the point in history where, where sex wasn't radically broken among human beings. Every culture has been oppressive, has missed the mark in some way. So there's nothing we can go back to that gets at God's standard. It's not about looking forward. It's not about looking back. It's about looking up and saying, if God created this and designed it, how did he design it for our flourishing? That's what Paul does in eight verses here. He gives us a radical view of sex. Three things this morning, the distinctives of sexual holiness. How does a Christian view differ from every other view of this? Second, the design of sexual holiness. What is God's vision for sex? What I want to show you is it's a transcendent vision. Here's something we can never forget as Christians. God did not observe humans someday and go, wow, look what they're doing. I guess I should put that in the Bible. No, he designed this thing. What are his purposes? They're beyond anything we could imagine. And then three, the discipline of sexual holiness, because unlike what our culture says, our desires have to be channeled toward a redemptive end. How do we discipline ourselves for those? So, let's look at distinctives first. You ready? Let's jump in. The distinctives of sexual holiness. We know Paul is concerned about this in the Corinthian church, right? He keeps talking about it in chapters 5 through 6, and he keeps giving commands around what we do with our bodies. Chapter 5, Corinthians, stop committing incest. Chapter 6, don't commit adultery. Don't commit acts of homosexual sex. Don't do anything that is sexually immoral. Paul cares about this, and he cares about this because the Corinthians were doing all of these things. And he presents now why they should stop and what they should do instead. And here's something we got to remember when we read the Bible. You know, we think that the, the Christian sexual ethic sounds radical in our culture. It sounded crazy to the Roman culture too. This was an incredibly promiscuous, permissive culture. And the Christian view of, view of sex was what one Roman classicist called a categorical rupture with the Roman world. This is a totally different view of sex than anyone had ever thought about before. And now Paul, here's what he has to do with the Corinthians. The Corinthians are Christians, but they're still thinking like Corinthians, right? And they still have a Corinthian view of sex. So what Paul has to do is show how the Christian ethic is different, and he's deconstructing their view of sex and giving a Christian alternative. Three distinctives here that Paul shows us. Go back a slide. First, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. Here's what Paul's doing. He's quoting a slogan the Corinthians used. Remember, he's in this ongoing dialogue with the Corinthians. And here in verse 12, he quotes a saying that apparently had become popular in the Corinthian church. And here's what the Corinthians were saying. Hey, all things are lawful for me. 
In other words, this was their view of sex. I have the right, the authority to do whatever I want. Now, why were they saying that? We don't know why. Uh, It appears they'd misunderstood Paul's teaching on grace. Paul says grace frees us from the consequences of the eternal consequences, right, of our disobedience. Christ frees us from the condemnation of the law. And apparently the Corinthians thought, hey, we're free from the law, period. We're even free from obeying the law. In fact, we get to be a law to ourselves. We get to do anything we want. And now Paul is correcting this view. They say all things are lawful. He says, no, not all things are beneficial. In other words, just because you want something doesn't mean it's a good thing to want, Corinthians. In fact, if it doesn't benefit other people, you shouldn't want it. That means it's against God's law. That's Paul's point. That word beneficial, it's closely connected to another word Paul uses, building up. Paul cares about building people up, right? Remember, he's going to go on to say in chapter 8 that love builds up. So what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about love. And that's where a Christian ethic starts. It starts with love. It starts with concern not for my desires, but for who? Other people and what would benefit them. So here's the first radical difference between a Christ ethic and a culture ethic. The culture starts with this question, what do I want? What does a Christ ethic start with? What would benefit other people? Sex isn't about getting my needs met. It's actually about serving other people. That's a radical view, isn't it? By the way, that's just as true in marriage. You'll find out next week. Just wait. (laughs) Even in marriage, it's not about getting my needs met. It's about serving my spouse. This is a different view. And this is just radically countercultural to our day because our day is just Corinthian, isn't it? Nothing's changed. It's just... Okay, I have desires, and here's how I I can sum up the sexual ethic of today in one word. Here it is. You ready? Consent. That's it. That's the only clear one. Maybe age, but then consent. That's it. As long as you can get everyone to agree to whatever you're doing, it's a good thing. Here's the problem with that ethic. We know intuitively it's not true when it comes to sex. In fact, you can consent to something or you can agree to something, Why do you feel cheap or used or horrible after doing it? Because some things make you feel cheap and used and and discarded and think, gosh, that that wasn't uh, a thing that was meaningful at all. You know, this is one of the interesting things that happened. Remember, Remember Me Too a few years back? Right, when all of these stories came out about high status men abusing their power and abusing women sexually. And many of those stories were just clearly criminal behavior right? Non-consensual, criminal, go-to-jail kind of behavior. Here's what's interesting. Other stories were technically consensual, and yet consent was not nearly enough. And that's what became clear. Because people and the high-status men would proposition people below them at work for what? Sex in exchange for what? Advantages, promotions, raises, right? Now, why is that so bad? And that's the question Louise Perry asks. There was this intuitive recognition that asking for sex is not the same as asking to do overtime or make coffee. I've made plenty of coffees for people, despite the fact that coffee making wasn't included in my job description. And I'm sure most readers will have done the same. But no worker who makes coffee for their boss will expect to end up dependent on drugs or alcohol as a consequence. No one will expect to become pregnant or acquire a disease that causes infertility. No one will expect to suffer from PTSD or another mental illness. No one will expect to become incapable of having healthy, intimate relationships for the rest of her life. Everyone knows that having sex is not the same as making coffee. And when an ideology of sexual disenchantment demands that we pretend otherwise, the result is a distressing form of cognitive dissonance. That's a nice way of saying when you agree to things that cheapen you, it tears you up inside. It tears you up. Consent is not nearly enough. The Christian ethic goes way beyond consent to love and says it doesn't really matter what's inside me, what benefits you. And if it doesn't love you, if it doesn't serve you, then I, out of love for you, deny myself. Okay? That's radical, isn't it? It's radical in our culture. That's number one. It's a different starting point. We have a different view of desire. We also have a different view of the body. What is the body? Is it just 
chemicals and neurons firing. No, it's eternally significant. That's difference number two. Paul quotes another Corinthian slogan. Don't you love this one? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. I think that's all a Corinthian slogan, that whole thing right there. Basically, here's what the Corinthians thought, right? I got a biological itch. What do you do? You scratch it. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat, right? When you have a desire, what do you do? You gratify it, regardless of what that desire is. This is just biology. We're just animals. And after all, God's going to destroy all of this, right? See, see, here's the Corinthians' problem. They had a hyper-spiritual view of the Christian life that denigrated what? The body. They thought they lived in this spiritual plane of existence. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and I live on this higher plane. So you know what? It doesn't matter what I do with my body. In fact, they had a view of heaven that God's just going to do away with the body. It's my spirit that's eternal, not my body. So who cares? It's just my body. It's just sex, which we hear all the time in our culture. Calm down. It's just sex. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. It's not just sex because it's not just your body. What does he say? On the contrary, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What's he saying? God created your body. God designed your body for a relationship for him, and God designed it for certain things sexually. This thing is created by God, and God said what in Genesis 1? His creation is good. It's not a bad thing to be discarded. It's a good thing to be redeemed and used for his purposes. So God made the thing. Here's the second point. God's going to redeem the thing forever. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. God made it and God raised it, which means our bodies are what? Eternal. You aren't floating around in heaven as a spirit on a cloud with a harp, okay? Spiritually playing your spiritual harp. That's not heaven. You have a body. You will eat. You will work. It's a transformation and redemption of the body, but it's what? A body. Your body is eternally significant, and your body isn't just some shell you can use for whatever you want. It is God's dwelling place forever. And as a Christian, the stakes get raised even higher because it's God's dwelling place right now. Which is why Paul goes on to say, do you not know, Corinthians, that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Your body isn't discardable, it's sacred. Do you know how God sees your body? If you're a Christian, no matter what you've done sexually or your failures in that area in Christ, God sees your body as a sacred place and wants to indwell it with his spirit. That's how sacred your body is to God. That's how good In Christ, your body is to God, that he would dwell in it right now. Boy, that raises the stakes, doesn't it? Can't just separate my spiritual relationship with God from my body. No, this is where the holy God lives now. Boy, boy, sacred space was a big deal in the Old Testament, wasn't it? It was a big deal to sin in sacred space because it was sacred, because it was so good. You didn't want to defile that. That's your body. See, here's the, the next difference between culture and Christ. The, the culture says it's just sex. It's never just sex. It's eternally significant. One, one of the problems with living in a disenchanted culture with a disenchanted view of sex is, is we describe sex by its anatomy all the time. All the time. It's just body parts clashing together. <sighs> Who cares? I mean, I hear this all the time, particularly male bloggers talk this way, or podcasters now, bloggers. Who blogs anymore? Podcasters. So, uh, right, like a super popular podcast. I hear a guy, and he's describing his relationship with a woman, and he's joking about it because he wasn't interested in a romantic relationship with her. He was interested in sex. And, And he's joking about the fact that she's all torn up about this. And he's like, yeah, man, she, her heart's broken. Yeah, look what we did together. Part of me was in part of you. Oh, I guess we're supposed to be together forever. That's the conventional wisdom. It's just body parts clashing together. Food is for the stomach. The stomach is for food. Who cares? We all know it's more than that. That's a crazy way of looking at sex. Okay? I've had lots of bad meals that upset my stomach. 
I don't remember any of them. Bad sexual experiences, do you remember those? The deepest trauma in your life is that. They're not the same. And one of the crazy things we try to do in our culture is separate sex from attachment. It's crazy, and you are working against the way God has designed the thing to work when you do that. One of the, one of the most tragic advice columns that happens, and you know, don't read this stuff, but there are all of these pieces of advice on how not to quote-unquote catch feelings during sex. I mean, the advice columns are, are crazy. Do drugs to avoid your attachment response. Think about someone else while you're having sex so you don't get an attachment. Avoid eye contact during sex in order to avoid making an intimate connection. Those are actual advice columns written. What is that telling you? That you have to actively work against the thing itself and what it's designed to do. It's not just a body. You're more than just parts. This is sacred. We have a different view of desire, a different view of the body. And, and then third, we have a different view of agency. And this is the most radical part of all. Paul says this. He quotes the same phrase, all things are lawful for me. But then he says, I will not be dominated by anything. See, the Corinthians basically said, it's my body. I can do what I want with it. Paul says, I can't be enslaved to my sexual desires. But do you know why? Because I have a new master. I'm not my own master. Sex isn't my master. Who's my new master? Jesus. Yeah, okay. Just give me the Sunday school answer, okay? Like, I try to give you softballs with the call and response, okay? That was an easy one. This is the most radical thing about conversion. When I become a Christian, I now belong to Jesus, which means my body belongs to Jesus, which is why Paul goes on to say this, you are not your own. Oh my gosh, that's like a contradiction to the central tenet of my culture. I am my own. No, you're not. You are not your own. Christ bought you with a price. He redeemed you at the cost of his own precious blood, and he did it to purchase you for himself. So you belong to him. I do not have a claim on my own life anymore. I relinquish that. Christ has a claim on my life. It's his life. And he gives me all of himself. His life is mine. My life is his. It's a new life where Christ calls the shots in every area. Which means Christ has full command over my body and gets to tell me what to do with my body. That's why Paul says sexual immorality is unthinkable because Christ says all of that is out of bounds. And anything you're doing with your body is now what I'm doing with my body, Christ would say because we are inextricably connected. And this gets to the heart of Paul's argument here. Here's what he says. Do you not know then that your bodies are members of who? Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Are you, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now we'll get into the one flesh thing and the one spirit thing in a moment. But, but here's Paul's point. My body is so inextricably connected to Christ that what I am doing with my members is Christ's will. I am living out Christ's life. It is Christ in me. By the Holy Spirit, I am joined to Christ which means to do something with my body contrary to Christ is unthinkable now because our union is that intimate. The idea here is that I am taking the members that belong to Jesus and divorcing them from Jesus to go do something he says not to do. Which means this, when I do things sexually, Christ does not want me to do. I'm divorcing my communion with him. We're still in relationship. But I am saying, I am going with my body in a direction that you are not going, and Jesus is not going with me. And so I am going to feel what? Distance in the relationship. I'm not going to feel intimacy in the relationship. It's, it's interesting. I found this. This is not always true, but it's, it's often true. Like, young people 
Often they start struggling with Bible difficulties at the same time they discover sex. I'm just, I, I, I'm just making an observation. So many times I've talked to college students or young adults and like, I just don't think Jesus is the only way and I don't think the Bible's true and this resurrection stuff. Yeah, okay, well, why? It's like, well, I'm also having sex over here. It's a lot easier to have a vague, impersonal God who doesn't make claims on you and punt to that God when you want to do what you want with your body and not listen to Jesus, okay? I'm just being honest here. It's not always the case, but often those things go together and it's a reason you will feel distant from Jesus because you are taking your body in a direction he does not want it to go, okay? That, that's the intimate relation we have with Christ. And this is a different view of agency. We talk all the time about agency in our culture. Our culture says all the time, it's whose body? Mine. My body. A Christian will never say it's my body. It's Christ's body. And I'm part of Christ's body. He gets to tell me what to do with the members of my body. I am not my own Lord. I have a new Lord. I have a new master. I belong to him. Does that make sense? Woo, radical, right? <laughs> radical. It was radical in Corinth. It's radical today. It's never changed it's never stopped being radical. Sex is a way to serve and benefit others. It's eternally significant. It's bound up with our relationship with Christ. Now, here is what is striking about Paul's description of sex, and this gets to the design for sex. What is the ideal for sex and why? Like, Paul could have quoted a lot of Old Testament verses about sleeping around. Right? He could have done that with the Corinthians, right? I mean, there's a lot in the Old Testament that would say, don't don't do this with prostitutes. And most people, even if you're not a Christian, you're like, yeah, that's probably not a good life choice, right? That's what the Corinthians were doing. And yet Paul doesn't start by going to all the biblical prohibitions around sex. Do you know where he starts? With what sex is. Why did God create this thing? And that's where we have to start too. I could take you through all of the biblical prohibitions and we could argue about what they mean and how they apply today. Paul and Jesus do something much, much simpler and more beautiful and more clear. They just start with, what is sex and what's it for? You ever wondered that? God made the thing. What's it for? What does it signify? Well, that's where we start too when we look at design. Here's what I want to tell you today. We have a disenchanted view of sex. We have an, an, a disintegrated view of sex in our culture, right? Sex can mean anything you want. But in the Bible, sex is inextricably connected to bigger, grander things. I want to show you three connections here, okay? You cannot talk about sex in the Bible without talking about marriage. It's impossible and the covenant of marriage. You cannot talk about marriage without talking about sexual difference and our maleness and femaleness embodied. You cannot talk about maleness and femaleness embodied without talking about Christ and his church and God's purposes and redemption. Those things are inextricably linked from Genesis to Revelation. Not some ancillary theme. This is the warp and woof of the biblical story. And what God has joined together, let not us separate in our thinking, okay? Three connections. And Paul just assumes all of these here in like three words. It's crazy, okay? First one, sex and marriage are connected. What does Paul say here? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul is quoting from Genesis 2.24 here. When Paul talks about a one flesh union with a prostitute, what's he talking about? Sex, right? Sex. What's Genesis 2.24 talking about? Marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. So Paul can talk about the purposes of sex and the purposes of marriage interchangeably. Paul talks about being joined to a prostitute. What is he talking about? Sex. But that word for joined, Jesus uses it in Matthew 19 about being joined to a wife. And he says what God has joined together, let no man separate. What does that mean? 
Sex is the way you enter into the covenant of marriage, and that is how God designed it. Marriage is a covenant in the Bible. It is a promise of love with binding obligations. That's what a covenant is, right? Every covenant in Scripture has an entrance ceremony, right? Baptism, you enter into relationship with Christ, right? Circumcision, you were in the old covenant. There's always an entrance requirement. What is sex? It's how you enter a lifelong union. That's what it is. That's how it's designed. It's what signifies, seals, enacts the covenant. It's also what renews the covenant, right? That's why, you know, I tell my wife, we need a covenant renewal ceremony. That's, uh, <laughs> right? It's the godly way to talk about this, okay? But that's what it is. But do you see, it is impossible to talk about sex without talking about the covenant of marriage because they're indissolubly linked. Paul can talk about one and just imply the other. Does that make sense? You can't separate these. Okay, we can't separate marriage then and the covenant of marriage from male and female. Because if you go back to Genesis 2, what does God say when he creates Eve? He says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God says, first thing that's not good in creation is man's aloneness. He can't fulfill his mission from God alone. He makes a strong, equal, equivalent, suitable helper, man and woman. And then what does the text say? After God creates man and woman, he says, therefore, and you know the rule with therefores in the Bible, right? Whenever you see a therefore, you ask, what's it therefore? Right? What's it therefore? Therefore makes you look back. Here is what the text of Genesis means. In light of the fact that we are created, what? Male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage from the beginning was designed as a suitable helper relationship between man and woman, that they together could fulfill God's mission on earth. Sex, marriage, male, female, they all go together. Do you see that? This is how God designed the thing. Now, you cannot separate sexual difference, male and female, from God's great cosmic purposes for us all. And here's what I mean. Did you notice how easily Paul switched back between the husband-wife relationship and the Jesus-us relationship there? Did you catch that? He talked about sex signifying a one-flesh union between a husband and a wife. That's what it's for. And then what did he say about Christ and us, his church, that we are one spirit with him? What's the assumption there? That, that my relationship with Jesus is like what? A marriage. In fact, it's, it's more accurate to say that marriage is like the relationship with Christ and his church. So male and female joining is in some integral way related to the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, here's the enchanted Narnia world of the Bible, okay? This is it. When you dig deeper into Genesis 1 and 2, you see male and female and their wedding together are signposts, they're pointers to this grander, stranger reality, which is the union, what? Of heaven and earth, of God's space and our space. Think about Genesis 1. It ends with this pair. God created the male and female, right? You know, that's not the only complementary pair in Genesis 1. In fact, Genesis 1 is just filled with complementary pairs. You have, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens, his space, and the earth. Two distinct spheres, one for him, one for us, but they were never meant to be like this. They're supposed to interlock and overlap. They're supposed to be wedded. Sin rips that apart, but they're supposed to be wedded, our space and his space. And just so we don't miss the point, God keeps filling creation with pairs, right? You go on to read of what? Day and night, land and sea, sun and moon, work and rest, macaroni and cheese, <laughs> peanut butter and jelly, Steph, Clay, Brock, Brandon, right? You can just keep going with all of the pairs that go together. God creates all of these complementary pairs, and the last one is what? Male and female. 
Now, each of these pairs, what do they all have in common? They're distinct, they're diverse, but they're made for what? Interlocking, overlapping relationships. See, see, God's intention with us has been written into the fabric of creation and most significantly into man and woman's sexual union with each other. And you know how I know that? You get to the end of the story, Genesis 22, and you know what it is? It's a wedding. And heaven comes down. And earth, the new Jerusalem, God's purified people come up and there's the ultimate union between Christ and his bride, heaven and earth, God's space and ours, husband and wife. Look, this is a bigger picture of sex, isn't it? This is bigger and more magical and more transcendent than anything our culture has to offer. And the implication is this, that God has created the sexual covenant between a husband and a wife as a picture of the spiritual covenant between Christ and his church. This is why the stakes are high with sex for Christians. Because this is the picture of the gospel that God has woven into creation. Do we care about getting the gospel message right? Then you've got to get the gospel metaphor right of sex, marriage, union. Does that make sense? Now, here's what that means. Every distortion of sex is a distortion of God's covenant love with his people. Every distortion of sex is a distortion of God's covenant love with his people. Does that make sense? I'm going to show you, okay? And I hope to be an equal opportunity offender here. If you're offended, trust me, I'm going to offend all of you equally at some point here, okay? So just keep that in mind. That's my heart here. But this is just what the Bible says. First of all, what's wrong with premarital sex? What does it misrepresent the integrity of God's love? Here's why. Jesus doesn't pledge himself to us partially. He doesn't give us his presence without also giving us his promise to be with us. But, but here's the problem with sex outside of marriage or premarital sex. It's a union that's supposed to unite you to someone forever, but you're not united forever. It is a life-uniting act without life-uniting intent, as Lewis Smedes has said. I like the way Christina Aguilera says it in I'm a genie in a bottle, because I'm a millennial and I remember this. My heart or my body is saying, let's go. <laughs> but my heart is saying what? No. You can laugh at that, but that is exactly the problem, that sex is designed to attach you to someone forever. And so it ruins the integrity of the act if you say, I'm going to do with my body something I won't do with my life and value. And that's why you have cognitive dissonance there when you're sleeping with someone that you're not committed to. Okay? It's against the nature of the act itself and it misrepresents Christ's love because the minute Christ gives us his presence and the blessings, he also gives us a promise, a vow that he will never leave us or forsake us. They have to go together. Does that make sense? That's the, that's the issue here. Second, we could say that adultery and polyamory misrepresent the ex exclusivity of God's covenant love. There's, and, I, and I'm adding polyamory just because it's popular now, okay? Like in 2019, 70% of non-religious Americans between 24 and 35 thought like consensual non-monogamy was fine. So like it's just more and more accepted, so I'm adding it in. But, but here's the problem with adultery or polyamory. Throughout the Old Testament, Adultery is a picture of what? Idolatry. Idolatry is spiritual adultery, right? God says, I am your one God, you are my one people. What is Israel constantly saying? We like you as our God, but can we have kind of a polyamorous relationship with God? <laughs> right? We, God, Yahweh, you're great, we just want other gods too. Right? But what does that misrepresent? It's an exclusive covenant. God is utterly faithful to his people. We're supposed to be utterly faithful to him. That's the problem when you lose the one-to-one -one standard here is you're misrepresenting the exclusive nature. Does that make sense? Okay, that's another misrepresentation. We could say divorce. This isn't about sex, but you know, it, it's, it's relevant and I just want to offend everyone this morning. So we're going to throw divorce in too. But it, it rep misrepresents the durability of God's covenant love. Husband and wife, one life till death do us part. It's permanent. God will not leave us or forsake us. 
That's the beauty of the new covenant is it's permanent. It's unbreakable. But divorce says the covenant is unbreakable unless... Now, I want to be clear. There are biblical reasons for divorce. We'll get into those in a few weeks. But they are exceedingly narrow. Okay? And they are concessions, not commands. And so, listen, there are biblical reasons to get out of a marriage. There is a biblical reason to divorce. There are times that absolute dissolution of a marriage is not your fault. Don't hear me wrong. But the point is this, that divorce is a tragic misrepresentation, regardless of who's at fault of God's original intent for marriage. It's an unbreakable covenant that shows the unbreakability of God's covenant. Does that make sense? And that's important to hear in our culture because there are all of these divorce narratives among celebrities that make divorce sound awesome. They make it sound great. We're going to go through a conscious uncoupling process now. It's like, it's like they're getting traded to a new team. Hey, we had a great partnership. We learned a lot. We grew. Uh, we have a mutual parting of ways now. It's just, it's just you know, but I, I'm appreciative of the time. And, you know, I've got, I've got a new adventure in front of me. Like, what is that? What on earth? No, it's something to grieve Be, because you, you realize that this is not the permanent covenant that God wanted. Does that make sense? Okay. Finally, we could say that homosexual practice misrepresents at a fundamental level the unity in diversity of God's covenant love. Did you see that in Genesis 1? It, it, it's way bigger than male and female, actually. It's heaven and earth. And that this picture of Christ in the church is a picture of two things that are different in meaningful respects coming together in union. God loves unity in diversity. The Trinity is unity in diversity. It's three different persons in a loving unity of relationship. Male and female are embedded in the design of marriage to be a picture of diverse things coming together. The covenant of marriage is about two very different people learning to love the stranger. My wife is not like me in many ways. And marriage is teaching me to die to myself and love her. And that misrepresents the unity and diversity because it's a merging of like things rather than different things. And so it misrepresents the picture of Christ in the church at a fundamental level. And that's why Christians have been opposed to it for 2,000 years. Okay? Now, I realize these are fraught with controversy, right? But what I hope you see is that the Christian sex ethic isn't some things are yucky, so we don't do them. That's ridiculous. It's not just based on psychological disgust or something like that. This is rooted in God's redemptive purposes and the picture he has put in creation for us all to live by. And we protect sex not because it's a bad thing, but because it's a sacred thing. And is bound up with the picture of the gospel we present to the world. Now, what does that mean? Uh, five minutes, then we're done. The discipline of sexual holiness. The, the discipline of sexual holiness. It's a discipline to live this way, isn't it? Because hear me, no one comes into this world without sexual desires that are going crazy in just about every imaginable direction. And love isn't just expressing all of those. It's disciplining them for the purpose of God. And it's a discipline for everyone. That's why Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Run. Get away from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does that mean? Other sins are against the body, aren't they? I mean, come on. You, get, you, know, you kill yourself with drugs. That's, that's against the body. What does Paul mean here? What he means is this, I think. That sexual sin is unique in that it works against God's created design for your body in a particularly intimate way. Does that make sense? That God's intimate designs for how you are supposed to work sexually, sinning in this way, is working against just the way God has knitted you together and his purposes for you. And so flee from this. Three, three things and then we're done when it comes to this. First one is this, self-denial in this area is required for all Christians, whether you're married or unmarried. One problem with some Christian teaching on this 
is it presents heterosexual marriage as the cure-all to sexual temptation. <laughs> it's not. Marriage is a context to express sexual desire. It is a cure for nothing. Jesus and the power of the gospel are the cure to hem in our sexual desires. Everyone is required to be disciplined. Don't believe me, stick around until next week. There's a lot of discipline required for this in marriage as well because it's not about me getting my needs met, it's about serving my spouse, okay? Everyone has to hem in their desires. And often in the, in, in the culture, we start with this idea of sexual orientation, but with the Bible, we should start with the idea of spiritual orientation. And guess how I'm born? You know what I'm oriented toward? Not God. In fact, I'm born at enmity with God. I'm at war with God, and my desires, in whatever direction they're going, other sex, same sex, whatever, have to be redeemed by God. All of them. Every single one. Think about it this way. In 1 Timothy 3, we get the sexual standard, right? Right? Christian leaders, one woman, man. For women, he goes on to say, one man, woman. That's the standard. <laughs> Exclusive faithfulness to your spouse. Do you know what I was not born as? I was not born as a husband of one wife, osexual. Okay? I did not come out of the womb like, someday I will marry Cashel. And now my sexual desires are only oriented toward her. No. I mean, honestly, like, I have gone through persistent sexual attraction to all sorts of members of the opposite sex, to members of the same sex. I've experienced all sorts of attraction in my life, and all that tells me, all it tells me is that my desires have to be disciplined to serve God's purpose. It's always a discipline. Your flesh is always your flesh. It will always be there until glory, until your body gets redeemed. So just because you have the desires just means you're still not resurrected. That's all it means. It is always a struggle. There's always a war to be waged. Now, you can have progress, but hear me, the desires and the temptations and the urges will be there forever. And the cure isn't getting rid of your flesh it's learning to put it to death. It's a different thing, okay? He hear me. The goal here is not heterosexuality. The goal is holiness. Because my heterosexuality can be distorted in all sorts of ways. Holiness is the standard here, and that's a discipline that applies to all of us. Next point I'd say here is this. Radical measures are often required especially in this culture that's just going to applaud you, doing basically whatever you want, okay? Get radical. What does Jesus say? Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. Make no provision for the flesh. You got to get radical, okay? And I, I feel for you, especially if you grew up in the digital revolution because you have been bombarded with more images than I could possibly imagine. I am grieved for you. I am not here to shame you, okay? I want to help you. As a fellow co-struggler in this, cut things out of your life that lead to this. You don't need them, okay? I don't need the internet on my smartphone. That's why I don't have it. That's why I have monitoring on every laptop I'll ever use. There's this crazy idea that, you know, it's just willpower in the Christian life, right? So I should be able to have things close to me and just resist them. That's crazy, well, if you're a heroin addict, I just got to keep a little bit of heroin in the glove compartment so I can just know that I can still resist it, right? Yeah. Got an anger problem, just got to keep my Glock right here, right? Just to know I'm not going to, you know. Like, what are you thinking? Honestly. It's not a sign of weakness to root the thing out completely. It's a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness to say this thing is dominating me and I need help. That's strength. That's strength. That means you've joined the fight. Don't live in shame because it's dominating. Like, you just have to willpower your way out of it. Listen. Like, you need help. I do too. Be radical and walk with people who will encourage you in this. Right? If you're a young person, man, the 
dating is a hellscape right now. Oh man, I feel for you. Man, it was easy in Christian college, right? I'm serious. It's so much easier, right? There's three girls for every guy, right? I mean, like, like it was easy. I'm going to meet someone and it's just like, it's crazy, right? I don't know how you guys do it. I feel for you, right? Because I talk to so many young people, right? And they're like, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, I am. You want to have sex? It's like, like, ah, no. Like, what are you, like, that, that is the norm now, right? The way you figure out if a relationship's a fit, you got to have, that's just like, it's so backward. I could just cuss. I get so angry about that. But like, honestly, you need a band of brothers or sisters around you who will say, you're not crazy. You're not crazy for treating sex as sacred. You aren't. And then encouraging each other because you'll fall down. You'll have failures. You got the gospel. Don't let it define you. Get up. Keep going. You need people around you are going to support you in this. Finally, and then we're done. Man, I want to talk about this more, but I can't. All right. Okay, Here, here's the fundamental issue. We do not need sex as human beings, but we do need intimacy. We do need intimacy. And I think one of the issues in our culture is people are so starved for intimate relationships as they use sex as a way to get it. And what I'd ask yourself if you're struggling in the area of sexually is do you have intimate relationships with people where they know you, they know your junk, they know your ugliest parts, and they love you anyway? Do you have real friendships in the body of Christ where you're walking that intimately? Because I know in my own life, okay, even as a married man, when I feel sexual urges, often it's an intimacy deficit. You need intimacy and ask yourself, if I'm acting out sexually in these ways, do I have any meaningful relationships with other people that aren't about sex? Because you need them. I have a wonderful marriage. I couldn't ask for a better marriage. I still have lots of intimate male friendships because I need them because you know why? My wife can't be the be-all, end-all relationship in my life. That's way too much pressure for her, by the way. Just way too much. I, I need other people that I can connect Two, I need that intimacy. Ultimately, I need it with Jesus himself because that's the relationship I was created for and that's what he's offering me. The, the most countercultural person is Jesus, right? Because who's the happiest person who ever lived? Jesus. Who never had sex? Jesus. So this idea in our culture that, you know, there's like this hydraulic pressure within you and you have to release sex to be a healthy, sane person, Jesus is like, the most fulfilled, joyful person who ever lived. And there will be seasons for all of us, single, married, I don't care, where you have to be very disciplined in this area. You don't know, even as a married person, if you're going to be widowed. You don't know. Your spouse might be physically incapable of having intimacy and you have to deny yourself for a long time. All of us are called to walk a road here and what we need is intimate relationships. And Jesus, here's the most amazing thing, he wants intimacy with us. Listen, here's the reality when we talk about sex. The thing that keeps us in addiction is shame. It's shame. You do something or something's done for you, you feel dirty, you feel damaged, you feel discarded, and then you feel shame, and so you go back to sex to feel better about your shame, and then you feel more shame for that, and so you have to act out sexually to deal with your shame, and it is a hellacious cycle. It's horrible. And the gospel is the cure for shame because the gospel says this, that Jesus looks at you regardless of what you've done or what's been done to you and he looks at your body and says, that's not in me, that's not a damaged, discarded, dirty thing, that is sacred to me. In fact, that's so sacred that I would die. I would take on your body and die in a body and then raise your body to be in a relationship forever and I love you and want you so much that I want to come by the Spirit to live in you and have that intimate relationship with you. And so whatever the lies the enemy has given you about being dirty or damaged or discarded or hopeless in those areas, name them for what they are. They are lies. Because Jesus proves beyond doubt that the God of the universe wants us and wants intimate relationship with us. And sex, you know what sex is? It's just a pointer to that. The relationship we were all created for. All right, let's pray. 
So Jesus, I thank you there's no condemnation in you. There is no reason to hide in shame. And Lord, I just pray that people would experience your liberating presence this morning. Lord, there is full pardon that they don't need to hide because you are not hiding from them. Lord, you pursue, you seek us out, you want us, you desire a relationship with us and with your bride, and the good news is you will purify us forever. And Lord, will we see this for the good and sacred gift that it is and discipline ourselves for godliness. And I ask it in your name, our holy God, amen.